Let's turn together to the book of Hebrews once again. Hebrews chapter number 6. Hebrews chapter number 6. And we're going to be looking primarily this morning at the expression that is given in the very first verse by the writer of the book of Hebrews that within it contains not only a, a past, but a present and a future. Hebrews 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. As we spent a great amount of time last Sunday pointing out the reality of Hebrews 6 and the reality that this was not a text and chapter about immature Christians and mature Christians, but rather those who were divided between the old way of Judaism and Christianity, more specifically on the doctrine of Jesus Christ alone. When we see these expressions such as therefore, leaving, and going on, of course it leads our mind to even what we're experiencing today. Um, I don't have a New Year's uh, message this morning. I don't have a specific about the new year and great vision and a great hope uh, as far as what we're going to do. This isn't our vision Sunday. Some churches are used to vision Sundays. That's not what this is today. Uh, but there is the reality of a leaving of something old and going on into something new. Uh, that's what is at the very heart of this text. As we've already pointed out, we understand that the very first word of this verse uh, gives us a close connection or a link between what has already and immediately been said. Remember, proper Bible interpretation, proper context always looks for what has immediately preceded a thought or an expression. That's why the word therefore is there. So we do not discount Hebrews 5. We spent a lot of time last week laying the foundation of this principle of the difference between Judaism, the old way, and the doctrine or of Christ. Now what makes this verse very interesting is the reality that the doctrine of Christ is being mentioned. But if we attend to this close understanding of biblical interpretation and doing proper context study, we find out that what is before us and what is to follow will become more clear. Now the word principles here is the, in this verse is the same word that is used in Hebrews 5.12 that is translated first. So these principles are the first of the doctrines of Christ. The first, we talked about last week, lead us back to the Old Testament oracles of God. The first, the beginnings of what we would see being unveiled or unfolded. Those principles in this verse, these are the first principles. The word doctrine there in verse 1 of Hebrews 6 is found in its plural form and is translated oracles in Hebrews 5.12. So we see that the doctrine and the principles are the first, the first oracles, the first doctrines regarding Christ. Now, if that's where this was to stop, then the writer would have simply said, 
Therefore, leaving these principles of Christ, he would have said there's nothing else further to do. But he says, let us go on unto perfection, which tells us that the very first oracles, the very first principles of doctrine were not complete in and of themselves. Again, points us back to Judaism and points us back to the law and points us back to what the Old Testament shadows were pointing to. Remember, I used the terms last week, shadows and substance, shadows and substance. In Christ, we have the substance. In the Old Testament, we have the shadows. We have that which was to come, that which was pointing us to the substance, which is Christ himself. Now, it's interesting that the word perfection there in that first verse is also the same words that is used in Hebrews 5.14 that is referred to as of full age. Okay, now that's, that's what's in the King James Version. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. It's the same principle, those who are of perfection. Not perfection in our humanity, not perfection in what we are, what we do, but the perfection that is found in Christ. This is that perfection that he is telling us to go on to. It is extremely clear that the writer of Hebrews is connecting and linking these thoughts together, and as I said last week, had no intention of decoupling these chapters. He had no intent of saying, now I want you to, I'm starting a new chapter, and I'm starting a new thought concept, I'm starting a new principle. He said, no, these are eternally linked together. I can't separate chapter 5 from chapter 6, nor can I separate chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 from chapter 6. All of those things make up the context of the journey we're already on with regard to this concept. So, as a result, he says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, those of you that have been here long enough know that there are some weeks where I will dig very deeply into the original word, the original language. Other weeks, I don't dig as deeply, and there's various reasons for that. But this particular week was a week of digging real deep into what the meaning and the original Greek text would have been. I disclaim right at the front, I am not a Greek scholar. I have not taken classes on Greek. I've not taken classes on Hebrew. I'm, I'm using resources. I'm using other resources to say, here's what the word meant. I don't claim here to be a theologian, and I don't claim to be someone who knows Greek. Uh, but I do understand uh, that some of the original languages, the way that it's expressed in our English translations, they have a deeper or a multiple meaning to them that often we don't just see if we just look at it in English. So that the writer had something deeper that was going. The word leaving is an extremely interesting word because the word leaving here uh, gives the impression by first reading it that it is something that is presently happening. That it has the idea where we say, okay, I'm leaving. It would be as if you've had enough of the sermon today and you say, okay, I'm leaving. And you get up and you walk out the door. It's present tense. It's happening right now. However, when you dig into the verb that was used in the original text here, the word leaving was actually being mentioned in the past tense, not the present. In other words, the writer was talking about something that has already taken place. You've already left it. You've already left what? So we would say in our language, I left that place at such and such time. This is what that word in the original actually means. Therefore, having already left or having left the principles of the doctrine of Christ. 
Now, this is where it starts to get a little murky. Why would we leave the doctrines of Christ if that's where we're going? Because remember, it's the first oracles or the principles of the doctrine of Christ. It's the shadows. It's the works. It's the things in which they were relying upon. Remember, Judaism became such a means that people believed that they were being saved by their works. Judaism, in its purest sense, was teaching you can keep the law. And he's saying, you've already left that. And having already left that, what is he telling them that they are doing? They are to go on unto perfection. Perfection is a completion of what the shadows were. That's what's in mind here. The difference is extremely important because if you now look at this from that standpoint, this is going to enable us to understand everything else that happens from here on out. Remember, this is not about being an immature Christian and being a a mature Christian. It's not about are you a milky Christian or are you a meaty Christian. It's about the reality of leaving the principles and the doctrines, the first oracles of the doctrines of Christ and going on to the perfection of them, which is fully fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's what's at the heart of what's going on in our text. So the writer here is stating something that has already happened. It's a positive, fact-based statement, not a plea for a possibility. Okay, let me make that clear. He's stating a positive fact. He's not asking the Hebrews to take a certain step. He's not rallying them to take the next step. He's reminding them of a step they've already taken. You've already moved away from the oracles. The first principles. That's why when we get to verses like 4, 5, and 6 about the falling away, why this is really going to matter and why I'm spending a whole lot of time today on one expression. Let us go on unto perfection. Because that's going to open up the key, or it's going to be the key to open up the door of those remaining verses that we're coming to. So he's not asking them to make a decision. He's telling them, you've already left these principles And by leaving them and go on, I don't want you to return to them, right? I don't want you to go back to what you once knew. I don't want you to return back to that which was only meant to be a shadow or a beginning or the first oracles. Therefore, we can put it, having left the word of the beginning of Christ, okay, that one of, the, one of the resources I was using gave a literal word-for-word translation of the Greek, and it rendered it that way. Wherefore, having left the beginning of the Christ discourse, having already left it, that expression is a parallel with the first principles and oracles of God that's found in Hebrews 5.12. It's a parallel statement. So in, in Hebrews 5.12, when he makes that statement, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. This principle here has reference to what God had made known concerning his son in Judaism. Now I'm trying not to be too lecture-based this morning, but it's so important that we get this. Because if we don't, we're going to misunderstand. So in the Old Testament, there are two things we know are absolutely positively true. 
Okay, now there's a lot of things that are true, but I'm going to give you two things that are absolutely positively true. First of all, the prophecies of Christ coming into the world are unmistakable. Okay, in the Old Testament, that is prominent. The Old Testament and how it connects with Christ. The prophecies of how he would come into the world, the prophecy of how he would, uh, how the Messiah would die for his people, the, 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 the sacrifices, the types, the shadows, all of those things were prophecies. But in that same vein of the prophecies of his coming, and you cannot disconnect these two, is the reality of the types and the figures of the work, and this is key, of the work he would perform. Okay, so in other words, the shadows were not, and prophecies were not just there to be a possibility. They were shadows that would, that would declare, here's the work that's going to be done. Okay, so he says, having left just those oracles. Now, in Christ, those prophecies are being fulfilled. In Christ, those shadows were now seeing their fulfillment. Those shadows, as I mentioned last week, now find their substance. The substance is found in Christ. Now, what work did Christ do? Well, we cannot miss the work of the incarnation. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, took on that robe of human flesh, he was fulfilling prophecy, but he was also performing a work. He came and he became like us, yet without sin. In his life, Jesus Christ performed the work of doing what? Perfect obedience. Never a hint of sin. Never the possibility of sinning. Perfect life was required to Jesus to live in order to fulfill the prophecies and the promises. He had to be sinless, and he had to keep the law perfectly. Did Jesus Christ keep the law perfectly? Absolutely he did. He performed a work. We have the incarnation, the work of the incarnation. We have the work of his life. He performed the work of death. Jesus Christ had to die, not just be punished, and not just be brought close to death, but he actually had to die. In his death, he accomplished and performed a work. He actually performed the work of atonement. He actually performed that which the sacrifices were shadows of. Every animal that spilled his blood on the altar was a picture or a shadow or a type of the work in which Christ was going to do. It's a work. You're seeing a running theme here. He worked the work of death. The resurrection. Imagine preaching a gospel with no resurrection. Then you have no gospel. Imagine preaching a gospel with no death. Then you have no gospel. You had to have a death. That death could only come as a result of the incarnation and could only come as a result of a perfect life, obedient to the law. Everything builds upon each other. That's why you can't just start with Jesus Christ and talk about the resurrection and not talk about the incarnation, not talk about his perfect life, and not talk about his death. The work of resurrection. 
On the third day, according to prophecy, Jesus Christ gets up from that grave. He raises from the grave just as it was prophesied that he would. What about the ascension? Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again on the third day, was seen by many witnesses, and at the appointed time and the appointed hour, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, which we've learned is the mediatorial role in which he is seated right now as our mediator. That's where he is seated right now. Someone says, where is Jesus Christ? He is not in the world today like that old hymn says. The Holy Spirit is in the world today. Jesus Christ, as that is in the bodily form in that sense, is not in this world. He's at the right hand of the Father. All of these works were fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, all the way back in Hebrews 3.1, we know that the writer understood that there was an understanding of these truths at some level and at some point. Here's what Hebrews 3.1 said. This has been a while ago. We were in this chapter. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Okay? Now notice, he's, they're using a phrase and they're using a words to describe Christ Jesus. He calls them holy brethren. He calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. This tells us that these Hebrews had an understanding of what all this meant. Okay? Again, this is, this is foundationally key when we get to the falling away verses. This was not people who had not known it and had not known these truths. These were people that were tempted to go back to Judaism, leaving the principles of perfection. Now, we sit here today and say, how would that even be possible? Because we sit here today and hopefully we say, I would never consider bringing in a sacrificial lamb today and provide the shadow again when the substance has already been provided, right? But yet this goes deeper than that. They were even going back as far as to begin the process of believing that the works in which they were doing were somehow leading to their own standing before God. So they had left what we'll refer to as the ABCs of Judaism. They had already left that. That's why the writer in those first expression of Hebrews 6 says, having already left that, let us go on to the perfection that is now the substance. Now, we're not going to get anywhere close to these two headings today, but I'm going to break this the next few weeks. I'm going to break the entire chapter up into two main thoughts. Now, again, there are, there are men that are a lot better at me than doing this, and that's fine. But I'm going to give you two, two main headings that covered all of chapter 6. The first heading is this. A return to Judaism crucifies the Son of God a second time. That's Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. So the main overriding concept is going to be, if these holy brethren could and would go back to Judaism, they would crucify Christ a second time. Okay? That's the main idea. We're going to get a lot deeper into the weeds on that, but that's the main idea. The second heading will be a reminder of better things in Jesus Christ bring sure comfort and hope. That will be Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20. Okay, Two main ideas, two main headings. 
So let's park a little bit longer on this phrase, let us go on unto perfection. The perfection here is an identifier of what in Greek is a definite article. In other words, that article explains the noun. It explains who is being thought of. It is set in relationship to that first phrase of the doctrine of Christ. In other words, here's what I'm saying. The word perfection is directly related to the doctrine of Christ. They are inseparable. They're related. In other words, one is speaking about the other, right? So the principles of the doctrine of Christ, it's speaking about the other, but yet it's speaking of a going on to that which is further. Okay, now I know it's a little bit, this is a little bit deep, so just bear with me. But notice that the beginnings, again, and this will make sense, hopefully, that the word says the beginning of Christ, not of the Lord Jesus Christ. The initial thoughts of the Old Testament shadows was meant to point specifically to a Messiah. Christ the Messiah. So when we think about the Old Testament, you cannot think about Abraham walking around saying Jesus Christ or thinking about Christ his Lord. What he was think, seeing and believing was the promise of a Messiah. Okay? He was, he was, and that's when Jesus himself said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day in the book of John. He wasn't saying that Abraham walked around telling everybody about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, does that make sense? That, that's, that's really got to be clear because we've got this, we've got this real weird theology that's starting to, bre- that's starting to brew um, even in some Reformed circles where we're starting to so put Christ in there. And again, he's on every page, he's on every chapter, but we're starting to kind of change the narrative to where people begin to say, well, they were talking Jesus Christ in the temple. Or that when every time a lamb was slain, that they were saying, this is a shadow of Jesus Christ. It was a shadow or a picture of the Messiah. That's why when Malachi, when we just finished reading, he talks about a messenger. Well, what in the world does the messenger have to give if we already know the full story? Right? The messenger was to tell about Christ. Now it gets even more specific so that when John the Baptist finally comes onto the scene, John the Baptist is now using terminology like this. Behold the Lamb of God. He's not just saying, behold the Messiah. Now he's saying, behold the Lamb of God that was slain. And the same Jesus Christ that he says, I'm not worthy to even tie the latchets on his shoes. You realize John the Baptist had a clearer view of Jesus Christ than Abraham did. Do you realize how clear our view of Christ is right now? You have this substance who's already come. He's already fulfilled, already done the work. He's already ascended. And now you and I are looking back at what he's already done. When John the Baptist announced that Jesus Christ was coming, it was all happening real time. He's pointing to the substance. This perfection then, 
This is the contrast between Judaism and what we're going to call Christianity. I'm using that term very loosely because everything today that's called Christianity is not Christianity. Okay, please get that. And I don't care if it's something Christian church that doesn't make it a Christian congregation. So the word Christian is used scripturally. It's in the Bible, but not everything is Christian. But that's what the difference is between Judaism and what we would refer to as biblical Christianity. That which is referred to as the perfection is the full revelation which God has now made of himself in the person of his incarnate son. The perfection is a reference back to the revelation of this incarnation of the son who is just as much God. He is no longer covered in veils and types and shadows and pictures. He is now unveiled. We really have to get how deep Judaism and the thoughts and the ideas were running because it was, it was at the very forefront of everything that they were doing and thinking. He's not veiled by types and shadows. His glory is now being seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So when we see Christ we are seeing this unveiling taking place. Now, the Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement in the, in the uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 about fully seeing Christ or what this, this concept is. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, here's what Paul writes. He says, For God... Now, by the way, God used in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul is using the term for God of Elohim. Okay, this is what he's talking to about. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God commanded the light to shine out of the darkness in order, and where did he shine that? Into our hearts. In order that we might do what? that we might to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Our knowledge of God and His glory has been put there directly by God Himself. Now that is a beautiful expression. It completely dismantles the idea that I shine the light of Jesus in my own dark heart. It is mighty God, Elohim, who commanded the light to shine in my heart. Wow. And maybe it leads us to the question, why? Why would he command the light to shine? The only begotten Son, John 1.18 tells us, has been declared that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, has been declared to be him. John 1.18. Familiar verse to you most likely. John 1.18 tells us, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So there's this declaration that Jesus Christ is this perfection that was promised. He is the unveiled fulfillment of the, va- of the shadows, the types, and the pictures. Now how do we know What's the next step of knowing that Jesus Christ was the accepted Messiah or the Christ? 
Well, it's that what Paul makes mention to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, which he talks about triumphantly finishing the work which God had given him to do, and he's been received up into glory. The very fact that Jesus Christ was received into glory demonstrates that he had finished, completed the work. Here's what 1 Timothy 3.16 says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, how was God manifest in the flesh? In Jesus Christ. Justified in the spirit, seed of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So he's been received into glory and upon an exalted throne... Christ is now where we're to set our affection. Colossians 3.1 now makes a little bit more sense as to why Paul says, set your affections on things above. He wanted the church at Colossae to have their eyes to the very place where Christ is seated, which is at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3.1 says that very clearly. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Paul very clearly wanted the church of Colossae also to go on to that perfection. Now remember, Colossians is filled with shadows, pictures, and types, and a reminder of who Jesus Christ is. So we're dealing with the very same concepts in the book of Hebrews. Let us go on to perfection. Not just of Christ or the Messiah, but of the Lord Jesus Christ and where He is seated. The second thought about this perfection, again, wherefore having left, let us go on to perfection. Again, that first word looks back to everything the writer has said previously. Hebrews 6.1, although it's the first verse of chapter 6, is really a conclusion that's being drawn from the previous five chapters. I hope I'm not confusing you. Because I just said there's no beginning. No, but it's a conclusion. Therefore, here's the conclusion of the first five chapters. Here's what's in view. The very fact that God has now spoken to us in and through His Son what has he spoken to us about? He has spoken to us about the very nature of who he is. He has spoken to us about not only the nature of who he is, but the substance of who he is. Colossians, Paul describes him as the one Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's described as being he himself has purged our sins. And as a result of the purging of our sins, He has sat down on the right hand of the Father on high. Having been made, the Bible says, so much better than the angels, He hath by an inheritance received a more excellent name than they. Back to the reference of the angels, which we did months ago in view also of the further fact that he was made in all things like unto his brethren. goes back to the incarnation. That he might what? Be a merciful and faithful 
high priest. To make a propitiation for the sins of his people. He has finished the work. The finishing of the work is demonstrated by the crown that he wears of glory and honor. The fact that he was received up into heaven. The fact that God the Father accepted everything that Christ had done was evidence that you now have a perfect picture of the substance. This is what you're to go on to. Thirdly, this let us go on to perfection has a reference to the apprehension of the divine glory of Christ. When we talk about Christ's glory, what are we talking about? Just his person, just his perfections, or just his position? We're talking about all three. When you see Christ's glory fully revealed, people, people use the word glory. They throw it around like it's, it's something that really doesn't have a deep meaning to it. But do you know what it actually takes to apprehend the glory of Christ? That means you have to be able to apprehend his person. Jesus Christ, the person. He's, he's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's a person. You have to be able to grasp that And that's just one-third of his glory, his person. Then you have to be able to grasp the reality that this person is perfection. Everything about him is perfect. Everything he did in his work is perfect. You're still only two-thirds of the way. To get the full apprehension of the glory of God, now you have to get his position. Where is he seated? He is now seated at the right hand of God, which has now declared him to be in his person and in his perfections and in his position as the full fulfillment of everything that the shadows and types were pointing to. Which again leads us why Paul says in Colossians 3, 1, seek your affections on him. It's from a practical side, the perfection of these things is the knowledge that is imparted by the Spirit to our understanding, and to our heart. It's the mysteries of the gospel. It's the doctrines that we talk about. It's the certainty that even as we heard this morning about the perseverance of the saints, it's the certainty of those promises. Why are there so many people walking around who don't believe the promises of God? Because it's not been imparted into their heart to understand. Folks, we treat the world as if they can apprehend the glory of Christ without ever knowing the glory of Christ, without it being imparted to them. You are not going to intellectually lead anybody to understand who Christ is by your debate skills. You understand that. Should you apologetically stand for Christ? Absolutely. But that's not what's going to get them to to apprehend the glory of Christ. The only reason you're accepting anything I'm saying is because it's being imparted to you, not because I'm saying it eloquently. If you're seated here today and you don't get his person, but you might understand the perfections a little bit and you might understand the position, but you miss his person, you're not seeing the full glory of Christ because you have to see all three. Remember, all those Old Testament pictures, it wasn't just one thing. God never said, hey, just watch this one lamb over here. And if you just watch that one lamb, that's all you got to be worried about. There were all sorts of sacrifices and all sorts of shadows, all sorts of types. I've told you everything in the tabernacle and everything in the temple had importance. You, do you realize that even in the temple and the tabernacle, even the hooks in which the curtains hung upon 
had a reason and a purpose and pointed to Christ? The very hooks that hung the curtains. None of it was inconsequential. So we get this picture here of this absolute apprehension. Now, perfection in our English language means that we fully get it all. But then Paul makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, and again adds to our our chewing on this when he says this interesting fact about what do we actually apprehend? What do we actually comprehend about the glory and the majesty of Christ? It's in 1 Corinthians 13, 9. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. There's a lot of our theology in this, but I want you to understand even Paul was making reference to something that was perfect. And he's saying that we only know in part all of what we're going to know. I've often thought about even what we preach and what we prophesy about and not prophesy by telling the future, but foretelling what we've already known. We still aren't seeing all of it yet. First Corinthians 8.2 says, If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. So when a man gets to the place where he says, I got it, I know it. Paul says, you actually don't know anything. So the point here today is not saying, do I apprehend and comprehend everything about this glory of Christ? No. But what did Paul say in Philippians 3.13 and 14? He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So what was the writer saying when he said, let us? Did he include himself in this? Was he including himself saying, I am tempted? I've been tempted to go back to the ways of Judaism? Or was he linking himself there as a resolution to do the very thing in which he was writing about? Now remember, that stinging accusation that was made in Hebrews 5.11 told us about one of the things, and it was, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Remember the writer talked about dullness. He talked about spiritually being dull, spiritually not where you're supposed to be. I think it's a little bit of both. Let us go on. The writer is including himself in not being tempted to go back, but also to pull them along to show them of where they ought to be. I think the writer was saying, I'm going to press on to show you the most glorious and set before you the most glorious things concerning Christ so that you are not tempted to go back to that which was only meant to be the first oracles. I recently read, and I can't tell you where this was, and I can't even tell you the full context. I read of a church, and I don't think it was in America. I don't think it's happened here yet. Churches that are returning to animal sacrifices. As an atonement. They're going back to an atoning, almost in the same principles, a once a year atonement. Why, if you have apprehended the glory of Christ, would you even think about that? Why would you say, I have to go back to laying a sacrificial lamb on the altar? 
Why would I do that? That's partly what this writer had in mind. Why would you go back to those things? I also think the writer was condescending into a place to unite himself in the responsibility that we'd have to go forward. Again, back in the text, if you look at that verse again, let us go on unto perfection. The let us go on, again, I, I told you I did a, I, this is a deep word study this week, so bear with me. This let us go on was actually in passive tense. There's a difference between active and passive tense, right? Passive is, has the idea of be carried on. Passive would be like if you were in a sailboat. If you've ever been in a sailboat, you are dependent upon the what to carry you along. The amount of wind's going to carry you on. How much strength is behind that wind? That's what the writer has in mind here. Let us be carried on. And one of the, one of the, uh, the word uh, books that I looked at actually gave the illustration that's taken from the progress which a ship makes before the wind when it's under sail. Now, in those days, they would have understood what a sail is because there was no motorized boats. We get that, right? The concept would have made sense. Let us be carried along like one of our boats with a sail. So this go on to perfection, it is in a passive sense. Now, does that mean that our will has nothing to do with it? Does it mean our affections have nothing to do with it? If that was the case, Paul never would have said, set your affections above. So this doesn't mean that you get on this boat and you just sit there and you say, okay, now we go. Again, I warned us in our opening meeting this morning uh, that the doctrines of grace do not teach us to just simply sit along and just see where God takes us. We're to be diligent about our study of the word and our apprehension of who God is. But this is the responsibility of God's people to excite and bring believers to make progress in this knowledge of divine truth. That's what the writer has in mind. Not only do you need to move on from the first oracles, but you need to be carried on and make progress in your divine knowledge of Jesus Christ as the substance. One commentator put it this way. You need to be carried past the porch. You need to be carried past the temple. You need to be carried past the tabernacle. You need to be carried past the animal sacrifices and enter into the sanctuary, into the throne room of God. We see a picture of that throne room a little bit was mentioned at 10 o'clock this morning about Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and holy and lifted up. Though the verb, again, is passive, the effect, let us be carried on, that means there is an active use for producing that effect. In other words, if I just simply don't do anything, if I get in a sailboat that's on the shore, right, and I sit in the boat, and let's just use an illustration, I'm 15 feet from the water, and I get in the boat and I just sit there, is that boat going to move? Not unless some storm comes through. So what's the intent? The intent is you put the boat in the water and then the sail carries you. That completely destroys any idea of we're just supposed to sit there and do nothing. No, we're to be diligent. That's what Paul said in Philippians. We're to press toward the mark. It's all about this pressing. All diligence is demanded of the Christian. 
Even Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.5 about how we are to be seeking and diligently pressing towards these things. We're to be moving in that direction. Here's what it says, 2 Peter 1.5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. I love what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 23, verse 23. He says, truth has to be bought. That's an interesting phrase. And Luke 8, 18 tells us that whatever God has given us is supposed to be put into practice. So how do we apply this perfection to us today? To the Hebrews, it clearly meant to abandon all the preparatory and earthly system of Judaism. Which that occupied, folks, and this is where I'm trying, to, I'm trying to drive this home. This occupied their entire attention before they were brought to belief in Christ. If you were to talk to a converted Jew and ask them, what were you obsessed and mindful of before Christ? All the things they would have told you would have been the works of Judaism. Why do you think Paul made the statement, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees and the Hebrew of the Hebrews? Do you think he just meant that by his ethnicity? He meant that in his mentality. Everything I thought about was Judaism. Everything I thought about was keeping the law. That's why Paul in the book of Romans writes so much about the law and how he thought he could keep it. And we get that glorious passage in chapter 7 where he goes back and forth saying, I don't do the things I want to do and the things I do are the things I don't want to do and vice versa. He goes on and on and on. You know what is, you know what's creeping back in? That Judaism was creeping back in. Folks, there have been works-based Judaistic churches in existence for hundreds of years. There are, there are Judaistic churches all over this state who are adding to the substance by trying to include a shadow. And it's just real subtle. And you might not even recognize it's there. This is still applicable to, applicable to us today. Christ as the sent by the Father. Now we'll deal with this a little bit more in depth next week, but notice what he says. We're going on to perfection and then he clearly demonstrates the first part of it. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's the two first things he hits. Not laying again the foundation. For Christians, turn away from those things which absorbed you which gained your attention. Later in Hebrews, it talks about laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets you. Run the race with patience that's set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you don't see them saying, go back and go, turn back to the ways of Judaism. No. Go forth. To the Hebrews, it clearly meant this was misunderstood was exactly parallel with what Jesus actually told his disciples in John 14, 1. When he said this, you believe in God, believe in me also. When Jesus said that, he wasn't just making small talk. He was telling them that you believe in God. In order to believe in God, you've got to believe in me also. 
Jesus, who had been visible to them, was now going to be invisible to them, and yet he told them to believe in them. I believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Implicitly, we are told to walk by faith. Implicitly, we are told that we have a great high priest in heaven. We are told that in heavenly places, we are already seated. All of our righteousness, all of our eternal life, all of our strength, all of our hope is wrapped up in finding and acknowledging God's acceptance of Jesus Christ, the Son, the substance. We think on the things that He's done for us. He's adopted us into the family. We've been reconciled. Our sins are no longer imputed to us. Yet we continue to sin. And think about how we have been redeemed, not with gold, not with silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. These are the apprehensions we're to be making. We're not worshiping an animal slain on an altar today. You were not asked to bring one. You were not asked to bring anything of yourself. But we're all being commanded and told, but look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We understand Hebrews 7, 19 makes reference to the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. The law could never perfect you. It is Christ who has ushered in that which is perfect. It is in Christ that we have a full revelation and manifestation of the eternal purposes of God. It is in Christ that we see these things. Not in and of ourselves. But yet as we read on, and we'll think about next week, think about what the writer was driving them towards and what he was moving them away from. Moving them away from that which they thought they could accomplish themselves, that which they thought they could work, and ushering them and pushing them to that which is perfected forever. Hebrews 10, 14 Paraphrased by his one sufficient offering of himself, Christ has perfected forever the law. It's been executed. Jesus in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, 4 says, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. Perfected. In consequence, the Lord Jesus Christ was rewarded gloriously by the Father. And it's the reward all of us share in today. We don't share in a reward because of the work that we did. We share in the work of perfection that Christ is. He is indeed the substance. And He is indeed the perfection in which we are to press towards and to diligently seek after. Praise God for His mercy toward us. I want to finish with just a quick reading out of the valley this morning, and then we'll be on our way. We'll stand and pray in just a moment. I did find this very appropriate for this day. And, of course, the, the Valley of Vision has been a great source of comfort and encouragement to me. If you don't read this on a regular basis, I would strongly encourage you to add this. Uh, not replace your Bible reading with this. Don't replace it. It's not a replacement, but it, this, is, this puts this beautifully. He says, O Lord, length of days does not profit me, except the days are passed in thy presence, in thy service to thy glory. Give me a grace that proceeds, follows, guides, sustains, sanctifies, aids every hour. 
that I may not be one moment apart from thee, but may rely on thy spirit to supply every thought, speak in every word, direct every step, prosper every work, build up every mode of faith, and give me a desire to show forth thy praise, testify thy love, advance thy kingdom. I launch on the unknown waters of this year. With thee, O Father, as my harbor, thee, O Son, at my helm, thee, O Holy Spirit, filling my sails. Guide me to heaven with my loins girt, my lamp burning, my ear open to thy calls, my heart full of love, my soul free. Give me thy grace to sanctify me, thy comforts to cheer, thy wisdom to teach, thy right hand to guide, thy counsel to instruct, thy law to judge, thy presence to stabilize. May thy fear be my all, thy triumphs my joy. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer today. Our Father, we have covered so much today. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to be able to stand before your people and to proclaim and preach your word. But Father, I know that I am not perfect and I am fallible. And I certainly pray, Lord, that if anything has been said today that was not right, was not correct, that certainly, Lord, I would be corrected. And that you, through your spirit, would make it known. But Father, we also know today that we are dealing with very serious issues and serious matters. We're not to handle the word of God lightly. We're not to view it as something that is like anything else. But we are to be in reverence and in awe of who you are and what you've revealed to us. Father, help us truly to study to show ourselves approved unto you. Help us not to study for a knowledge that can be uh, arrogantly portrayed and announced to the world, but help us to apprehend the divine majesty of God and to truly see the substance of the perfection that's found in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for what you've made known to us. We thank you for the things that you have not made known. In your sovereignty and in your will, there are many unknowns. But may we trust in you, and may we go forth from this place rejoicing and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our hearts because we know the Redeemer. Father, we plead with you today that if there's any that has never repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today, wherever they are, would be the glorious day of their salvation. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. May the grace of the Lord be with you.